0: All right, good morning. Good afternoon or good evening everyone i'm super excited uh, grateful and honored that we are joined today, of course, not only with someone who's become a very good friend of the show and a good friend of myself. um, Brandon from expanding reality but we're also joined by someone who I was supposed to be on a roundtable with uh, many days ago, but unfortunately certain things came up and I couldn't make it but. Without further ado, we have with us miss Mira Taylor, who is an integrative therapist in addition to a mental uh, spiritual awareness uh, individual has a master. A certificate in it and amongst a slew of other things as well. But for the sake of saving time and all of this, how are you doing, Mira? And thank you so very kindly for coming on today.
1: Uh I am doing wonderfully. I'm very happy to be here. Very happy to uh have aligned with the show and the audience and excited for more amazing conversation. I had an, an awesome time on the show last week with uh without your presence, unfortunately, but I'm sure you were with us in spirit. Glad yes, <laughs> yes. you're feeling better. And, but yeah, I had an amazing uh, amazing time talking about fractals of consciousness with Andy and Brandon. So I'm excited to see where this conversation, where we fractal out into this conversation.
0: Awesome, and Brandon, <laughs> how, how are you doing,
2: brother? Every day above ground is a great day. Thank you for asking. And uh, just pumped to be here, of course. Mira is just one of my best friends ever, and she's just wonderful and so intellectually challenging. I want to make sure I say that right, challenging. And uh, she's just a delight. (laughs) right? And uh, so I'm very excited about these two meeting of the minds, you and the audience. I know this is one that I set up, and I'm very excited. And this one goes out to you, the audience. This you two right there. All right. If you think that. uh,
0: Sure. Then I I imagine that we'll we'll hit it off quite well. Um, Just for the record, for the audience, about ten minutes before we started recording, we kind of just did a quick chat of just very vaguely things that we could we could uh, encompass and cover, and uh, a lot of it had to do with again uh, science, philosophy, spirituality, metaphysics, mathematics, archetypes, um, superstructures, things like this. Uh, But more in particular, uh, abductions and contactee phenomenon. I was wondering, Mira, if I could get if we could get your take on um, abductions and contactee phenomenon. Pertaining to whether it's you know uh, my labs UFO UAP uh, more of a spiritual internal experience that you know seems to disseminate or project outwards when it really is not per se um, not not to put words in your mouth but what do you what do you uh-huh. think of that overall?
1: Oh well, we're pretty in tune then. So I you know ever since I really got into concepts of uh, you know some of the older concepts of religion uh, or spirituality that, you know, were the concepts of Gnosis. Uh, so my business, Moon and Room Wellness, is called Gnostic Wellness because um, the concept of Gnosis or enlightenment to me is, you know, all about that inner journey that we take. And so my theory with uh, the abduction process is that it's actually, you know, it, it kind of plays into the micro macro concept that, you know, we are both, uh, an individuation within the universe and the entire universe itself. And so that when we have a or when people have an abductee experience, it's not necessarily that they're being beamed up to a ship, but that they're kind of being taken inward to a part of their universe that's got a lot of questions for uh, what the F is is God doing (laughs) in our universe, you know, we want to study. And so for a lot of people they are like, well, why and how would that happen? But, you know, you look at something like CERN, where we have an obsession with the God particle. And so, you know, I, I basically got to the concept of understanding that I'm sure there are other dimensional beings and other, you know, universal entities that have the same interest as we do. And that, you know, by finding that sort of very small apportionment of light, uh, you know, like what CERN's looking at, that we could have a similar experience as an abductee that, you know, we're the thing being studied under the microscope, or where were the thing, um, you know, being taken inward consciously to another dimension that exists inside of us that we just don't really have a uh, conscious awareness of on on a daily 3D basis. Um, there was a there's this really amazing uh, TED talk by a woman named um, I think I want to say it's uh, Jill, Jill Taylor Bolte, and she is a woman who was a neurologist who, and like, as weird as it is, this is like one of my happy blanket TED Talks that I watch like once a month, but she was a neurologist who uh, grew up with a brother with severe schizophrenia. And so she spent most of her, like that's why she went into neurology and all that. Long story short, she had a stroke, um, a really severe stroke. And she was so pretty, because of her understanding as a neurologist, she was still very aware as the stroke was happening of the states of consciousness she was in, And how different the experience was mechanically for her as the left hemisphere of her brain would shut down. So, you know, in that context, to this, she had this experience where because she basically fell into herself, she felt the expansiveness of herself. And so, you know, it's just sort of fascinating from the context of us thinking that we're being, you know, taken somewhere else as just this instead of being taken inward to ourselves to understand maybe some deep in heart like inharmonious things that are happening within our own psyche within a- in our own personal consciousness or you know just something that occurs because there's a part of us you know if if we're someone for example who has an obsession with trying to figure out, creation, that there's a part of us that then would be obsessed with trying to figure us out as creator. Um, So that's kind of, you know, it's sort of a little bit all over the place because it's.
0: But that speaks to the micro and the macro of observation. Yes. Right. Right. Now. Wow. Okay. I'm okay. So does the, you're truly, you're, you're, uh, you're riding my wave here in this (laughs) regards or, or vice versa, but does this speak in your opinion to anything having to do with uh, what's called non-locality? um that uh, in quantum physics where it's there but it also isn't simultaneously
1: so i think that what people are experiencing is is their total nature you know of being and non-being simultaneously which is realistically uh what god's percept god's perception would be is to both be and non-be all at once because all that that like total, total mind knows is the fullness of total self in the present moment. Um, So even the concept of time, right, is something that gets removed a lot of time, times, (laughs) pun intended, uh, for abductees, but that from a linguistic standpoint, a lot of what falls away for us when we have those sort of experiences is a lot of the spatial terminology that we have linguistically applied to time, even though time and space are supposed to be inherently separate. Um, so you know, we think about and we kind of spoke to this last time, uh, or last week on the show too, but that you know, we talk about how long time feels, or, uh, you know, how, um, you know, when we describe the future, how we'll talk about it being ahead of us, but that there are some cultures who speak about and have the context of the future being behind us. Again, these are all spatial perspectives that only exist because of our 3d format of understanding and the application and definement of linguistics to that 3d understanding but that once you remove the physical realm that we're all so used to uh, we lose all those defining points of spatiality when it comes to the concept of non-locality so you lose it because you lose that linguistic 3d awareness that we've all gotten so comfortable with applying uh to things like time you know if you exist outside of time well you can't have spatiality anymore because we've attached so many defining uh you know words to it basically would be my perspective on it
0: right thank you so much do you find it um uh, well first off let me say i take it you're familiar with the platonic solids um the different shapes that seem to comprise the the core uh superstructure or a blueprint of what we're currently living in or experiencing? The triangle, the cube, the sphere?
1: Yes, so uh, Brandon and I have talked about this too, that platonics and platonic solids are very Euclidean uh, from a geometric standpoint. And so to me, they lack a dimension of emotion, uh, I would say, is the biggest thing Um, that, you know. The reason I am more fascinated by things like fractal geometry and, and hyperbolic geometry is that they have that sort of concept of being breathing and alive um, in that emotional sense that there's like an emotional experience you have when you look at fractal geometry. Whereas when you are experiencing the more simple formats of Euclidean geometry, which of course is all we're over time public education, right?
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: We learn to unlearn. <laughs> you
2: know what it's kind of but... like though. Is it's it's kind of like a snapshot of the moving. So it's kind of like not the full story. It's like they take a picture of the kinetic yes. action that really comprises everything. But like you talk about, Dave, it's really more about the journey than it is the destination. So the snapshot would be this look, um, this other form. You know, with all the normal standard shapes, the Euclidean form. But really, fractal is more of the kinetic joining of all of those things together in a in that. That also encompass time so then therefore you have duration and change, so it seems like these platonic solids are just snapshots and that's what they present to you, but really. If you just take those and like thumb them like a flip book, you know they animate, and this is where you get the fractal nature so really it's like half truth, you know. You just. I think they were like the stepping
1: stone to you have to have some format of a stepping stone to that deeper awareness and so it's almost like. We had to have two d two g the two d geometry right. before we could experience and understand the emotiveness of three d geometry that is more that like hyperbolic and fractal nature uh, of things. So it'll be interesting to see what four d geometry looks and feels like once that becomes an experience for us. I'm sure you know there are probably beings out there who look at even fractal geometry and they're like, oh, silly humans.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's like us drawing in the sand or something with a stick. Yeah, so yeah.
1: I'd love to ask you, though, before we
0: go on, Mira, your perspective on when you say that you find Euclidean geometry, forgive me, you said is non emotional or?
1: Uh, I think that it's pretty rationalist and reductionist because that was the basis of understanding that we needed at the time to create a foundation for higher states of awareness. So it's you're... not to degrade it in any sense, but it's, you know, right. you don't, most people, aside from the emotions that occur when you're trying to solve. Uh, you know, things of a of that sort of nature in mathematics, um, yeah. that it's not something that, you know, it's very formulaic, um, it's very mm-hmm. uh, collective consensus. Like it's very obsessed with having the same answer for everyone and everything. Whereas I think the, the spaces that are more available in the context of fractal and hyperbolic is that it's far, it's uh, you know, that even mathematics can be a far more subjective and personal experience. Um, the guy, uh, you know, who you know, invented and discovered is another uh, argument point, even within, you know, the major players of mathematics, but the guy who invented and or discovered um, fractal geometry Mandelbrot, was actually seen as someone who basically was, you know, causing problems for the mathematical world because it, it's not necessarily that it went against Euclidean geometry, I think it built upon it, but it's, you know, to me, it's not dissimilar to the relationship that Freud and Jung have. You know, I look at at Euclidean as very Freudian, um, and I would say that I look at something like fractal or hyper hyperbolic uh, geometry as more Jungian. If you could sort of create that simile between those two uh, very you know different fields, but archetypally similar relationships.
0: When you say Mira non-emotional, just to, just just to pick your brain on that, if I may. Do you speak of, say, for example, there's no um, compression and expansion, if that makes sense, with no Yeah, there's
1: not like a breathing to it. I think, you know, that's, that feels a little, uh, romanticized. Right. But I think there is sort of a very humanistic romantic, uh, not like natural expression to the thought of breathing. Um, right. even from a religious standpoint, you know, the breath of life is something that is very important to most of the origins of almost all forms of spirituality, that there you know, there are people who believe that the word Yahweh um, was actually invented because it was the first sound we heard was the sound of breath, the mm-hmm. Yah and the way. That's literally what it sounds like when you breathe, if you like, get quiet and listen to it. So I think that it's just missing that breath, um, that, you know, again, it's 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 like it's flat we know that it's flat even though you give dimensionality to it from a sort of illusionary standpoint right like we all know that you can draw a cube on a flat plane and create a sensory experience or understanding of the intent for dimension but the the, the dimensionality is still technically lacking in that space um and so even when you work with fractals that's kind of true too until you you know unless you went into um a totally immersive experience where uh like you let's say you put on like the 3d immersive um glasses and experience like that i think would be a cool experience for fractal geometry because then you could see the tangibility of the true 3d depth of it um even when you look at you know the Mandelbrot models and stuff it's still kind of flat feeling because we're either looking at it on a screen or on a picture or whatever it is so I would love to see actually some uh, some experiences for people with that, with things like fractal geometry, where you can go in and, you know, I'm sure Tony Stark would love that, right? Is that whole concept yeah. of like the uh, the projection that's more movable and, and th- truly 3D in front of you then.
0: What was the, sorry, what were the set of models you, you referenced there?
1: Uh, so the Mendelbrah, um models, they were, so he was the first person to uh, use a computer algorithm to generate them also, uh, wow. which is pretty fascinating. Okay. Uh, sort of okay. and a fascinating convergence for me is that I actually, uh, my family knew a guy, an artist named Siri, who was the uh, first person to do graphic design on a computer back in the uh, late 80s. He did something called the fly. Um, it was a computer-generated model, but they came around at the same time, which is sort of fascinating because the fly is still the thing that they study the most uh, to understand epigenetics too. So there's, a, there's like a weird correlation for me as far as how those things uh, connect to each other also, even though they express themselves so differently.
0: Okay wow well first off, thank you so much for bringing all of this up, I actually have a little bit of a list I wanted to, to go through with you here. Yeah. Um, so in, in speaking of which I just did this a handful of days ago, speaking of synchronicities pertaining to my notes here i'm going to show uh, in, in a second, but for the audience, uh, the first. Uh, drawing is hyperbolic geometry, the second one is euclidean and the third one is elliptic i'm wondering Mira, if this would be a, a good um, visualization of what.
1: Yes. Okay. So, yes, because yeah. I think, you know, so we'll talk about synchronicity as far as that whole concept of spatiality and time sure. because synchronicity is a completely non-linear, uh, non-chronological experience to have. It's a com- it, like for me, I I'm very intentional, one of the affirmation, affirmations I use every day is that I am living and existing on, on the concept of time that would be synchronistic or uh, as the Greeks called it, keros time or opportune time. Okay. Which is, you know, basically existing on the time that is built around the subconscious intuitive awareness of patterns that are epicentered to you and your own personal psyche, instead of the collective consensus of you know, what things are. So, you know, everyone can walk into a room and see a cardinal and we'll all go, okay, it's a cardinal. But to me, I've attached a subconscious integrated understanding that it is a representation of wholeness, because it also subconsciously integrates to the understanding of the cardinal directions for me, which um from many different formats of spirituality and psychology represented the quaternity or the wholeness, the addition of the uh the feminine or subconscious forth within a spiritual context that was sort of devoid from a lot of biblical scriptures.
0: Does this speak to um, the the uh, postulation of I am therefore I think, rather than the other way around?
1: Ooh, um, you know, I think that that's an excellent Zen cone. Do you know what Zen cones are?
0: <laughs> Honestly, no, but it sounds in, in, super intriguing. So I'd love to so- hear. It.
1: Uh cones are Buddhist riddles that Buddhist monks use to uh they're almost always a paradox of some kind, and it's used to sort of pry open the mind of the uh individual, the, the student or the disciple, if you will, to the potential that fullness, that potentiality in all directions that exists. Um, you know, that there's no right answer to it. So in that context, I you know that we want to choose one as. Uh, one or the other happening first or, or, be, or becoming before the other. And for me, it's gotten to a place of simultaneity, um, that they, you know, that there, they happened, we don't necessarily have to make a choice point that our duality mindset is obsessed with making a choice point about those things, but that there's also a total uh, possibility that things happened much more simultaneously and less chronologically than we want to, as far as, you know, how creation started even
0: that that speaks to, in my opinion, omnipresence. Not just quad—I uh, guess you could say quaternion presence, but omnipresence. And not only that, to me as well. That wow, okay, that speaks to again a scalar, uh, scalar waves because they're 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 rotating in uh, in spinner states that only have magnitude, no particular direction. They are everywhere and nowhere simultaneously in that that fluctuative sense. Does that would you agree with that in that regard of perceiving things that in that way as well?
1: So yes um and and, you know even the context like we'll we'll hit on the linguistics of that because if you didn't know the words i am or if we hadn't created language to describe the words i am would you have a sensation of i amness you know from from the context of even a plant does a plant or a tree understand the concept of i am and and being or does it see and view and experience itself in a totally different way because of that lack of linguistic understanding or belief system that we as humans seem very obsessed with. You know, a tree still is, right? But it doesn't necessarily have the context of I am. But we know that uh, they have consciousness and that they think um, that, that, that's that been kind of proven scientifically. There's an amazing woman named uh, Monica Gagliano who does a lot of work with that and is actually starting a, a company for sonic midwifery that has to do with uh, plant consciousness being ser- shared with human beings. But that that whole thing of I think therefore I am I think that you you know there's a possibility that those things had to emerge together um that they didn't necessarily emerge one or the other duality um,
0: duality was needed in order for there to be a focal point of comparison to the other Right. What if
2: it's the paradox, the question itself, because if you think therefore you are, then the reason that you feel that you are yeah. is because you think so. Well, and by the way, you can thinking, think that you are not. Well, that's true that that leads you to that. But if you, the reason that you think you am is because you think you am. And so that's the thing. Right. And so I think, therefore, I am. Therefore, if you don't think, therefore, you're not. Right. I mean, that's the inverse of it, right? If you just walk it backwards, the natural state would not to identify as self. Get yourself aware like that you've got limbs and shit. I think of entropy and
0: negentropy when you go there.
2: See, right, because now you're talking about separating from self and becoming an I am. I am declares yourself separate from other things. This is when you start relationing your world out and relativity comes into play. And you're over there and I'm over here. And then this is where judgment comes in because you're told to judge things in preference to what you prefer. And so you get on this really deep rabbit hole with this, but the the answer in that parable, I think, is if you just walk it completely backwards, and you say, "I am not," I am therefore I'm not. So therefore, if you don't think at all, then you don't think that you are in anything. So I think the lesson there is not to separate from self in that
0: way, from source in that way, by creating self. But now, see, to to both of your points. Uh no disrespect, Brandon, I'll probably lean to more towards Mira's point here. Would not let me would, would one not need the opposing pillar to even derive a sense of, of some, I guess you could say some sort of independence in that thought in which you're, you're yes, I, it, it seems part. like the thinking is the creation of duality,
2: like the fact that you thought about it, and therefore made a judgment call in some way, even as an observer, therefore, now you like the first thing that you judge the first thing that you think about. You know, this makes me think of why Native American cultures named their babies the first thing that they saw. You know, maybe that has some sort of significance. But it seems to be that the first thing that you come across with this idea is where you progress with it or you don't. And so, therefore, you know, like I am a conspiracy theorist. You know, I'm just filling the blank, whatever you want. I am a this, but you had to be exposed to that to associate yourself with it. To, to also
0: Professor jissen's thick time, and then I would love for, for Mira to jump in as well, to even, you need time to think of who right. you are. So yeah, by definition, in, right. And that speaks to, again, I'm not trying to say there's a trap or confinement, but that speaks to Mira's whole Euclidean has no emotion per se, because it's that-, that Not animated. It's not animated, right. There's that, that lineage, of, lineage of stability when in reality, what we call instability which i think there should be another word for it but again that speaks to the duality of our confined language there should oh, be how
1: we want to make one of those things good and one of the, those things bad
0: it's the judgment Instead of that's just, what like, i mean yeah,
1: judgment. yeah. yeah right.
0: and so right. therefore
2: you separate and then you gather things in your mind and in your world that you prefer over other things right like this picture frame my wife picked out because she liked that over another picture frame and so now we just have that one. So it's just like your life, right? And you do this with thoughts, you do this with energies, you do this with all sorts of experiences, right? And it, this is, again, an argument for consensus reality, in my in my view, um, because it's so subjective. But And especially when it gets to time, especially when it gets to your perception of yourself. And to what you said, Mira, about plants being self-aware, and we know that. Self-awareness is what they say, but that's our delineation that's like the way that mankind thinks that something thinks about itself and so well, i it's i not think even that they're true. like
1: consciously sensory aware but i don't know if they are aware of uh well that's not true no, i i, I, you know, I you think, think that they yeah. kind of exist in you know just a different format of it but the thing you said about uh children earlier is interesting because There are psychologists who have proved that babies don't understand the concept of I I am or being an individuated thing until they're like a little over one years old that you know that there's no uh there and I don't necessarily agree or you know I'm not taking sides on this but there have been uh psychologists who have sort of rationalized that to because there isn't an I am state of consciousness in a baby that it doesn't that it doesn't retain a um individuated sense of soul self or self until it has that conscious awareness of the state of i amness. um so they, it's just sort of fascinating they don't see
2: themselves separate from their mom i've seen those studies that's crazy they, they, they don't just see themselves mom as separate
1: them. as, as anything and this is one of the things that was fascinating about uh jill taylor bolte's um whole talk that she did on ted is she said one of the first things she noticed when she was having the stroke in the left hemisphere of her brain shut down is she fell against a wall and she said the boundaries between my hand and the wall completely disappeared, that she could not, that there was just like consciousness and she could no longer separate herself from anything around her until like her conscious mind would turn back on and be like, Hey, oh, you're having a fucking stroke. Go, go call the hospital damn but it's it's like fascinating that because that part of her brain shut down and she describes it as having experienced nirvana yeah that that state of like not knowing the the boundaries between yourself and any other part of uh creation or materia was what felt like enlightenment or nirvana to her and not necessarily you know the other way around
2: because it devolved it dissolved individuation it did like mended you into the one now you're everything and so it's very comfortable amazing feeling yeah i think
1: babies kind of experience that like they don't necessarily like i you know they also are linguistically unaware for the most part too which is sort of fascinating what that does to the state of consciousness um even for us at a uh, a level of materia experience but yeah, it's just sort of it's interesting that there could even be a possibility for that sensation or awareness within consciousness because of something like a stroke. Um that and then someone could come back and kind of speak to that. One of the other th- funny things about that talk is that when she came back and she realized she was having a stroke, her next thought as a neurologist was, "How cool that I get to experience this."
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: which totally resonated with me because i feel like i'm that kind of person too where i'd be like oh my god how do i observe this this is fascinating like, yeah, That's I <laughs>
2: if i got abducted when i get abducted and they let me remember i'm sure i'm totally <laughs> annoying to those things because they're just like oh god this <laughs> this motherfucker again and just asking a bunch of questions and shit
0: well i did speaking of abductions i did want to just quickly come full circle on that uh, speaking on platonic solids and and euclidean and non-euclidean geometries Um, Do you find in your personal research, uh, Amira, that pertaining to abduction and or contactee phenomenon, there's a reoccurrence of the platonic solids or Euclidean shapes or even non-Euclidean shapes?
1: Um, So I, you know, I think it depends on which, not to apply too much spatiality terminology to it, but which uh, dimensional part of yourself you're being taken to. Um, that maybe it is the more two-dimensional foundational structure that needs greater awareness uh, or strength uh, of understanding applied to it. And so the entities or experiences that you partake in in that sense might be more two-dimensional because maybe they're trying, you know, maybe they have to reach out to the third dimension to be able to evolve into the third dimension. uh, That that's something that has to happen for us And so, you know, I think that there's even a simultaneity there that we can lose our sense of what, you know, even 2D format uh, experience or understanding or mathematics is intended to be for us, but Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, for me, I look at. Like we talked about this last time that for me, if I think of what non-3D dimensional beings would appear to me as, or what a lot of people refer to as light beings, that they would be uh, very light-based and very fractal looking um, versus, you know, more Euclidean looking. Um, But that's my personal perception. I think that, you know, a lot of the things that happen too is that spiritual or non-real entities, um, astral entities that we experience appear to us in the format of things that we have a deep and uh, resonant relationship with. So this is why you know multiple cultures have uh, a format of Christ or Buddha that appeared very different to them um because that was it looked the most like them, or it had the most resonance for them. And so that was the best way for that dimensional being to create a connection uh, through consciousness to you. But that, you know, the way I experience that being might be would probably be different than the way you experience that being because it's just looking for the best way to make a sort of emotional um, connection to you through the things that you already kind of have a deep reverence or understanding
0: for. The the information structures are are providing you a certain comfortability that yes. your whether you want to call it your neurons, uh, the the external sensors are are more re- receptive to in an, an, an electromagnetic sense.
1: Yeah. Right. So like if you if you are someone who studies a lot of Euclidean geometry and you have a, a love for it, right? right? I think that they are very aware of our emotional connections to the things that we have love for. That they you know that those are the formats or uh, visions that they try to share with us as them as you know the way they would look to us because they want to be loved and accepted uh, within us or outside of us. you know, paradoxically, but, it's probably both. Right. Um, but that you know, yes, I think that that's why people have such different experiences of these entities and yet many of them may in fact be the same type of entity. They could be the omnipresent one entity um you know that there's there's context within that even of of what logos is as you know uh from a pantheonic sense that there was the all god that was the total mind of the archetypes and then there were these more individual deities or archetypes that expressed themselves as metaphors of the human psyche but so, always these entities are looking for some form out of a personification that feels uh comfortable and, and like something that you love uh, to connect with.
0: Right. Now, before we go on, I did want to ask, uh, have you heard of by chance the owl of Minerva from dusk till dawn?
1: (laughs) Well, I know lots about Minerva and the owl and um, the Athenian archetype because I lived it for a long time. Happy to have uh, evolved away from it. But I don't know specifically to the context you're speaking of.
0: Okay, can I get your 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 overall perspective if that's all right on on the owl and Minerva and why you you uh, truly just asking good faith why you feel comfortable moving away from it rather than uh, leaning into it per se.
1: Uh, well, so it, it's sort of an Minerva or Athena um, are a pretty incongruent archetype. Mm. So born they supposedly born from uh, their father's mind. Right. Uh, not not born of anything materia necessarily, but there's a lot of context to the sort of uh, relationships of how that particular archetype treated other f- women, other forms of femininity that I don't speak to anymore. That was highly competitive, highly envious, right. highly objective. Um, you know, most people don't know that the story of Medusa. You know, most people hear about Medusa and they associate Medusa as the bad guy. But the origin of Medusa is that she was a young woman, human woman, who was very beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that there were men uh, who near Athena's Acropolis would speak to her beauty and the potential of her being more beautiful than Athena or Minerva. That's and that, the
0: duality of we have to label something negative.
1: Well, right. So anyway, you know, basically the other thing that happened is that Neptune uh, raped Medusa. And she ran to uh, Athena's Acropolis, basically, to ask, or Minerva's Acropolis, to ask her for help, for protection. And because of Minerva's envy of these comments of Medusa's beauty, she actually chose to punish her and turn her into a gorgon. Um, and and like, there's context to her actually even stating that she defiled the Acropolis by coming there. So you know, it's just. There's a lot of deeper mythology. I think people know some very basic mythology, especially when it comes to Greek and Roman. I know from my study of it, it's probably my least favorite of of the pantheons that I've experienced because uh, there was a lot of power given to pretty awful uh, masculine archetypes, yeah. um, and also pretty toxic feminine ar- archetypes. Like even the Juno archetype is one that's pretty. Um, Toxic and envious of other women, and that you know doesn't place much response conscious responsibility on the masculine or patriarchal archetype that it is sort of contract like contractually obligated to within the mythology.
0: Which right now, which um archetype would you say you are forgive me if this isn't the best way of putting it, but ideologically subscribe to at the moment that you, you lean into the most that you would recommend to others to delve into in a more good faith, open, open conjecture setting of approach?
1: Oh, it's a personal experience, honestly, Um, I am at a point where I'm happy that those mythologies existed. I've created my own in my own mind from the basis of the origins of the archetypes as expressions versus personifications. Um, I think that the archetypes have been way over personified over the history of humanity and that People have a tendency to then sort of idolatrize those patterns or behaviors instead of creating new ones, um, that they have a tendency to repeat them instead of understanding that they are their own archetypal new expression to become a new. Uh, we can kind of get over obsessed with wanting to be a pre-existing mythological archetype instead of be, you know, self-actualizing as archetypally new, um, different. When,
0: sorry, Mira. When you say the tendency to repeat, does that does that speak to? Um, and I'm I'm not asking this in a negative nor positive manner. Okay. Just right down the middle. Does that speak to fractals or or or, cymatics, or would you view that in a bit of a different category, if you will? Because I wonder how. Uh, forgive me for both as as much good as there could be to go down these um these rabbit holes that, that I that I go down myself quite often. There seems to be myself personally. Uh, I find myself going down these rabbit holes that sadly bring me back to an archetype that i'm not particularly a fan of maybe that's just me in my mind but you see what i'm saying
1: yes so i've accept like i accepted that i existed uh in that more minerva or athenian nature but that it also feels like an expression of mythology that was written by men for men um you know that basically it took the feminine and removed you know there was also a very different context of the feminine archetype uh, that was less individuated at one point in, you know, very early Roman pantheons that actually understood uh, Minerva, Venus, and I I think Juno as actually one expressive deity that they were um, that all of the archetypes were one woman or one feminine deity that had these different expressions available through her. And so that's the thing that I connected to most that sort of was a revelation for me of that whole shapeshifter concept of, oh, well, we are all of the archetypes that we breathe and exist in all of these many different emotional expressions. Why do we have this tendency to like want to pick a favorite and box ourselves into that uh, storyline or think that that has to be, you know, why go backward in time, why not make a new evolved expression of the feminine and the masculine that has an understanding and acceptance of those truths as a part of our human history, um, but also has an understanding that, you know, they're the past for a reason. (laughs) That, you know, you're, you're intended to learn from it but not repeat it. Um, And, and like I said, I think people get a little idolatrous about those really personified deities where they don't see it as a a simile or expression of the psyche and how to get out of those patterns instead of how to look at them as some um, bigger force or thing that's greater or better uh, than you just because it was written into mythology as a God, basically.
0: Right. Now, I did want to ask about this, this, if I may, this um, archetypal wheel. That, that we had brought up prior to, to recording that you had mentioned. But before I, I bring that up, I did want to ask your perspective, whether from someone who studies these, these pantheon of archetypal um, uh, foundations and superstructures, if you will, and, and also as an, an integrative therapist, what do you, f- um, if you've come across this before? And if not, I'd love to get your initial reaction in real time. But there have been many um, hypnotists um, where they've taken particularly children that have gone through hypnotic regression and things like this, and again, presume under the facet of multiple um, filters and all of that nothing is is, um, I guess you could say uh, faked or anything like that and the children seem a handful of children seem to have the same um, past life memories amongst a handful of them almost as if again forgive me for oversimplifying more so to the audience but the the shell of the body was sort of copy and pasted onto multiple variations of a dare I say spliced um, soul if you will or something like this now I'm using Overly generalized words, just to get to the point. But have you come across this, and if so, what do you what does that speak to you as?
1: Um, so I think it's the fractal nature of consciousness, basically. You know, when you look at something like a fern, which is one of my more favorite expressions of uh, fractal geometry in nature, for a multitude of reasons. One, because it's so um, old; it's one of the oldest ones on the planet, and clearly doing pretty well from a, an evolutionary standpoint because it hasn't had to change itself very much. But one of the things about the ferns, when you look at it, is that a fern is made up of a bunch of other little ferns, basically, um, that, you know, when you look at a feather, a feather is made up of a bunch of other little feathers. And so it comes back to me for the concept of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. And yet there has to be a, a set of parts for there to be a sum,
0: which speaks to the that sort of that that. I guess you could say cosmological feedback system of a fractal toroid field or something like this of, of uh, the cycle where one is needed needed for the other. Now,
1: oh, a 1000%
0: would you say that that concept is could be situated within uh, uh, the archetypes itself or there would need to be one archetype as a whole and a second one to, to comprise that sense of duality?
1: So I think we're born um, with a, what we spoke to this last show too, that there's like, you know, we're kind of, we're born with a sensation of free will, but that we maybe, you know, from a percentage standpoint, we aren't maybe existing or expressing in the totality of our free will because of some of the, uh, you know, genetic codex programmatic structures we're born with. One of those things being our zodiacal expression um, from an exterior standpoint. So, we kind of spoke to this uh, before the show, but that whole context of this is my sun sign. And so, these are my behavior patterns, these are my traits. And I, you know, even if you aren't someone who uh, follows zodiac or astrology, that I think there's a lot of truth to some of those expressions up to and until the point that you decide to redefine yourself to self actualize. But that until you have the awareness from your sort of Learning experience within the less free-willed archetypal programming, like the Zodiac sign, that you can't get, you have to have that space to get to the space where you can self-actualize. You have to be unself-actualized to be able to move to self-actualization, which is a pretty, you know, metaphorically accurate description to even what we were speaking about earlier, as far as uh, God being and not being, and that I am that I amness. Right, like at some point, consciousness or you know whatever the origin or root of all reality is had to ask the question, or think, or have a sensation of what am I? Um, and so that's sort of for me the same. That's that's what spiritual awakening is for a lot of people is what am I? What am I not? And what do I want to be? are kind of like those three uh, questions that have to be asked, but that you only start asking those if the existing archetypal archetypal programming feels like it's not working for you, um, or that it's something you have to break away from, uh, so that you can continue to become you in a different, uh, you know, a slightly different variation.
2: So let me ask you this, why why do the gods have such human flaws? You know, I know that there's a reason for it. Um, it, it. It seems like, and this is an issue I had in religion as well, it seems like I'd like outgrown that type of behavior, you know, from the god I was supposed to worship kind of a thing, you know what I mean? And so with all these jealous gods and all of that kind of stuff, it's interesting that it seems like the strongest and most powerful methods of control only go up to a certain reading level, if that makes sense. It seems like once you get past the eighth grade, you don't really feel like reading Goosebumps books anymore. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so it seems like these archetypes don't resonate with you anymore because you've kind of outgrown them even ideologically. You're just like, okay, well, I mean, it's kind of a cool story and it's cool that they can like lift shit with their mind and stuff. But I would never be that jealous or I don't you know, empathize with the weaknesses that they have. I may have my own, but... even. It seems like this all powerful thing that has those specific weaknesses that you've already outgrown. Like I said, it's like a reading level thing. It seems to only appeal to people at that certain level of awareness. And then that's when it breaks down, you know, as far as being practical in your life at that point. Is that something that you empathize with? Yeah.
1: So, you know, I've thought about this a lot. Like, even the fact that uh, whatever the totality of creation is has to have had an egoic moment for us to have ego. Right. And so that egoic moment for me as an expression is a lot of those more original formats of mythology, because the, you know, Yahweh or Elo, really more so Elohim is a highly egoic, mindfully incongruent being, because we as human beings were being that. And so we sort of like, didn't want to take conscious responsibility for it and made it a man in the sky. Right. (laughs) Right. 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 But that, you know, it's it we at a certain point now we're like ready to return to source, but not ready to face all that source has been because it's all that we have been. And so it's like our more human nature within God that makes us, uh, you know, that disconnects us. I saw a great post the other day about someone who basically was talking about how so many people, uh, you know, define enlightenment as an inhuman experience and that that makes it you know, entirely intangible or approachable for us as human beings and that it's also just unrealistic that, you know, if you look at some of the people who we've have accepted as enlightened beings, they had very human qualities. They also potentially had, you know, from a psychology standpoint, pretty narcissistic qualities. Like Christ walked around, walking, walking around saying that he was the son of God and everyone was like, okay, But you have to be, you know, I don't necessarily think it's egoic in the sense of, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's a difference between being centered within yourself and being self-centered. For me, that expression was something that was centered within self, but not necessarily self-centered. Um, yeah. That the opposite end of that spectrum, though, would be that self-centeredness, that selfishness that uh, has you know, just like the man in the sky is, is separate, separates itself from the rest of humanity and puts itself above, instead of seeing itself in all things, that would be that more like Christ I Amness, um, that, you know, sees itself in everything else.
0: Have you heard of um, to to everything you just said, thank you so very much if it seemed like I wasn't paying attention it's because I was trying to pull up a bunch of uh, uh, papers pertaining to what you were saying.
1: So i'm that person too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you you. um have you heard of to everything you just said uh, something called evolutionary code theory by chance.
1: um i'm sure that I have come across it, but not necessarily in. Like with that title, edge, if that
0: makes sure, sense. Sure. Sure. If I if I could read here for for yourself and the audience is um, speaking to evolutionary uh, programming is one of the four major evolutionary algorithm paradigms. It is similar to genetic programming, but the structure of the program is to be optimized. Uh, to be optimized is fixed, while its numerical parameters are allowed to evolve. So, particularly the latter part there, while its numerical parameters are allowed to evolve, I couldn't help but think of your um. Uh, your your proposal on on fractals which seems to be that same concept there but not only that do you find uh, mira pertaining to the first first sentence i'll read it one more time evolutionary programming is one of the four major Evolutionary algorithm paradigms notice how again it speaks to four, the number of the quadratics the four ver- yeah. uh, vertices that the platonic solids of the cube and you know squaring the circle, as they call it and what have you, do you find in any of the archetypes that you've delved into whether you. Um, more so the ones that you tend to find more um, more conjecture and and things that make more more sense in that matter, do you find um, the platonic solids to be a. Reemergence maybe not directly or explicitly but a reemergence of three vortices that could comprise a triangle, you know four vortices that could comprise a cube so on and so forth.
1: So what's interesting about this is that if you take DNA and splice it and look down at it from a top view it basically looks like the Trinity. um. Or which ironically enough actually is not devoid of that of that fourth element it's the thing that encapsulates it right but everyone sees the three fish or the three. uh, You know sort of vertices and goes Oh, the Trinity it's three Well, realistically it's actually realistically it's. um, Five because it is that that exterior circle also but then it is also the thing that is all of it all at once, which people kind of forget about Um, but to that effect, I actually, if you don't mind Please. Um, me sharing my screen, I have this. Um, I have a thing that I put together that involves that. Uh, let me see. Of course, it would be, be helpful if I knew how to like share my screen.
0: No worries. It's the um
1: Okay, there it is. Yeah. So all right. So oops i'm sharing my workshop um, but so this is a symbol that i i took the trinity and i basically noticed that the teal is uh, another addition which is basically that nothing that exists as the space for the trinity um, or this sort of uh symbol to exist within at all but that i kind of looked at it as a flow and i labeled the flow of it as consciousness and that, from our perspective, it's it's sort of there's past, present, and future. And then from that more synchronistic awareness or total awareness of time, there's the transcendent self, which perceives, uh, you know, kind of the fullness of its experience through time in a simultaneous and present fashion. So it's like, you know, when you uh, are going through life and you realize, like, wow, this same thing happened exactly a year ago. Maybe it was like slightly different, right? But that's that sort of archetypally expressed self that's moving out of that 3d structure uh that more linear structure that more flat structure or understanding of time and consciousness into this space um what's interesting too there's a facility near me called genalia and they are actually studying 4d cellular structure right now that it's possible for us to you know from a neuroplastic standpoint our, uh, our DNA seems to be very trinitarian, but we seem to be consciously evolving it into a more quaternitarian format of even uh, DNA, but it kind of plays into that concept of repeating the existing codex versus self-actualization. The self-actualization that's occurring right now seems to be the thing that's neuroplastically and consciously evolving us into that 40 cellular structure. Uh, as entities versus you know staying within that Trinitarian one that is um, you know, sort of the more orthodox? Would concept. that I'm Sorry,
0: Mira, sort of jump would that speak to randomness versus indeterminism or non-determinism? Because randomness would be that you have a a preset. Um, I, I, you know, pantheon of of outcomes that are that have to be sort of inserted beforehand in order for them to be built upon by the task maker. Whereas non or indeterminism is something that seems to be something that Sir Roger Penrose c- claims, admittedly, that he can't describe what it is, but he can certainly describe what he what claims it is not. If that makes well, sense.
1: Well, it must it must be very godlike then, if you can't put it into words. <laughs> <laughs> thing I would say about that, but yes, I, I, you know, I think that there uh, is a bit of like effect in that sense too, where we're so obsessed with consciously, linguistically assigning identifiable consensus value to things that oftentimes some of the greatest minds in the world have difficulty putting these things into words because it is so intangible. But right. that whole, you know, that that's a pretty fractal thing too, in the in the sense that it's more concerned with the anomaly behavior within creation than it is concerned with the um, determined or orderist behavior. But uh, to equate it you know, to something that we oftentimes want to put ourselves above our, uh, you know, as society is that even when you look at computational systems, you know, let's say the three of us all buy the same uh, you know, laptop at, at the store. Sure. And they all have the same operating system, but they all also have a learning algorithm that comes with the operating system. Those three computers are going to learn and experience very different things because of their experience of us as the uh, the the architect of their learning. Right. But they don't have much free will within that learning process. And yet it can come to a point where if you let those three operating systems and learning algorithms speak to each other they'd go well wait i'm different than you and yet we're the same how is that possible
0: because there was a preset by the by for example when i purchased my computer took it home i preset it with tasks that were accustomed to my individual self where and you did the same thing and brandon did the same thing right, right. so
1: you know there's even a space there where those learning algorithm algorithms would learn that there are other learning algorithms that learn differently And then there would be, then even in that space, there would be a possibility or sensation for that effect of I am, now because I am different.
0: Right, now going back to the concept of the, the, the building upon a genetic paradigm or code that's already there, I wonder if that example of us taking the computer, bringing it home and all of that speaks or parallels to that because of the fact that say, in this metaphorical example, we needed to deliberately turn the computer on and conduct a set of tasks in order for that computer to even begin to learn if that right. makes sense, there was yeah. an activation
2: and what's even more interesting about this when you uh, put it on put it over put this idea over this reality is that we're all computers that all have already had a bunch of programming in the forms of past lives that we come into an experience together to learn with each other on how we each other learn with what we're presented in this place but it's from a knowledge base of a learning algorithm that we've added to over However, many lifetimes or soul expressions, or whatever we even wanted to add to this. Maybe That's, you left half of your deck of experiences back in the other reality and you only needed this certain set, you know, for here. It's, so you come in with this preloaded computer and then you learn
0: a bunch of more shit here, too. Well, to me, that speaks to ancestral DNA and the, yeah, fractalization, exactly. the fr- exactly. fractalization of it. The thing, not to get all t- tinfoil hat here, but the thing that is claimed in um, the surface level academics is junk DNA, I think is really not. Oh, What's that? Let's talk,
1: let's talk about junk and all of the archetypal uh, similes that express itself even within a computer because we gave a computer a subconscious mind and we call it a RAM drive. Do you know what the job of a RAM drive is? To mm-hmm. take junk data or extraneous data and hold it until there is an opportunistic moment from the learning experience of the more conscious hard drive of the computer to reinject it into the system in the right moment. Because now all of a sudden it's useful. But before that, the reason it existed in the, in the RAM drive as uh, junk data was because there hadn't been something that had happened yet on the conscious part of the hard drive to make it useful.
0: Like a conductor with a core. Yes. yeah.
1: So, and what's interesting is that we call it the RAM drive, right? So the even the word RAM has all sorts of symbolic context to it in the sense that the RAM horns have something, uh, been something that has always been symbolically representative of uh, fertility and very specifically the womb. Yep. Uh, and again, that sort of that intuitive uh, subconscious connotation of it as, you know, being the subconscious mind of a computer, for example, versus the conscious mind that is, you know, that that hard drive, that interface that we sort right. of and play with. Uh, could, but it, yeah, it's just sort of just, fascinating.
0: Not just, not just because you're here, Mira, but if I could say, I truly do believe that um, uh, the, Feminine energy, the divine feminine, the archetype of that is substantially stronger than that of the male. And it's not about competition, but I say this because based on my own personal research, there seems to have very sadly been a suppression of the the divine feministic, uh, you know, source of energy or anything of this, if you will, because I mean, if we think about the concept of you know our internal compass is constantly, from an ontological perspective, being swayed, whether it's through advertisements or what have you, you know, external environmental, um, you know, influences and all of that. I find it quite interesting that when we look at the fact that, again, going back to the limitation of language, uh, particularly deriving from the Anglo-Saxon influence of Latin and all of that, we find that truly, it, it, based on certain scientific experiments women are substantially more powerful than men pertaining to and i'm not saying i'm not saying this because you're here it's just this is what i found no, to no, no.
1: i so. i think i agree with you i think the difference is that the feminine uh, archetypal expression of creation has never been interested in defining itself as powerful mm. because it's highly dualistic and competitive and that's not where the archetypal feminine strength lies this is another reason why the athena archetype was one i kind of moved away from because It felt like one that was far more interested in expressing itself as toxic masculinity to fit the existing existing pantheonic structure as powerful instead of existing as its more archetypal original form of the feminine expressiveness that is you know that its strength is held in its emotional um awareness and its ability to you know let things go for example or its ability to speak up for itself without uh, being competitive about it. You know that it can see something that's being unloving and still be loving. Uh, but you know that these are very this is a very different form of strength than these more conscious patriarchal, uh, you know, sort of masculine energy was interested in for a long time because for a long time, Darwinianism told us that evolution was done by competition, not by nurturing. And yet, when we look at it from a more realistic perspective from a more macro perspective, we see that it's always been nurturing it's just been our perception of suffering through competition and duality that's you know made it seem that way.
0: I wonder if the archetypes of speaking to the fractality of the micro versus the macro I wonder if certain archetypes are exclusive to a particular um. I don't want to say plane. I don't want to say realm. I feel like that's too limiting. But you see what I'm saying? I wonder yes. if there's an exclusive plane that may be suited, sort of like the way you lock a Matrushka doll over top another uh, to a particular archetype, more so than that of another set of, of, of scalability.
1: Yeah, uh, so I would agree with that. And this is a very silly example, but it's one that I'll give that I experienced the other day that was like very revelationary to me, which is that. I was on a walk and I walked by a family of geese. So there were two adult geese and there were like five little baby geese. Now, one of them was like highly attentive, not eating, not yep. being, you know, and like looking around for danger. And I immediately thought to myself, like I, I had a, a paradoxical moment with it where at first I wanted to define it as masculine. I wanted to say, oh, that must be the male goose. But then I sort of like started playing with it from a perspective standpoint, from that archetypal awareness standpoint, and was like, "Well, no, actually, usually it's the mother that's more attentive, uh, right. that's you know paying more attention to the exterior world out of protection, and is sort of not really self-sacrificing, sa- sacrificing, but choosing to not allow itself to be, you know, mindlessly just eating with the children as though nothing else is happening around it." And I realized that we've sort of flip flop flopped that in society where like the way I was raised, I immediately defined that one goose as the masculine, even though I haven't really gotten to know that expression of the masculine very much in my lifetime. And I don't think that very many people have, but that it also kind of really helped me open up to the understanding of how subjective even that is that that whole concept of I am that I am and that you know when you look at philosophical consciousness or spiritual consciousness from even a more Taoist, um, more Eastern philosophy perspective, that consciousness within us is, uh, you know, total consciousness is both, and that you have to find those archetypal expressions within yourself and understand that sort of flip-flopping nature of them too, even through the evolutionary process that has allowed us to be, you know, genetically or phenotypically man or woman, but still come to a more total understanding of the expression of gender, through us as us in a, you know, in a, in a bigger way. Um, You know, speaking of like those patterns, as far as uh, you know, repeating them over and over again, you know, I'm at a point now where I've realized, well, at some point along the way, there's gotta be a new form of gender that comes along. That's like, you know, pretty realistic other, otherwise gender sort of becomes devoid of meaning within the evolutionary process. So it'll either be that we, Lose gender as a construct because of how dualistic it is, or there will be new forms of gender that are created, uh, you know, consciously first, spiritually expressively first, but that then they would uh, possibly appear in physical form. And we know this kind of already to be true because there are people that are born as hermaphrodites, um, you know, and th- that as a society we look at that as a malfunction, but that from, you know, a creative evolutionary standpoint, it really might not be. <laughs> Well, it's
0: interesting you bring that up because there was and forgive me to the audience if this may not be the best example, but there's a show that I used to watch called House that the doctor based out of New Jersey and there was one episode where he uh, examined where he had um, uh, uh, some parents come in and they were very frustrated. Uh, This was in the mid 2000s. This episode was filmed as to whether or not their son or daughter was male or female. And he basically by the end of the episode bit of a spoiler here, again, was a hermaphrodite. And he said, generally speaking, he goes in pure medical theory. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, your son or daughter is the perfect male or female.
1: Right. And, and, like, <laughs> and, that, and yet yeah, we look at that as anomaly as, you know, uh, a diseased or incorrect. Well, does this,
0: I wonder if that speaks to the the, the the dualistic archetype of again there needs to be that pillar of comparison, but why does the pillar of comparison even need to be negative to begin with. And then right or to open up that set of more I guess venn diagram circles, you then have a macro scale out of the flower of life, if you will, and then how do you compartmentalize or from an entropic or negentropic state, how do you organize those if at all. That- yes.
1: Sorry, go ahead,
0: Brennan. Oh, I was just going to say
2: that it's very interesting that this that we kind of experience this dualistic reality, this two genders, this this or that, either or, you know, this kind of concept. And so, yes, maybe mirror what you're talking about is the next evolution, which is the next concept of even that being null and void, meaning like we've done that. Okay, that's cool. And then we're going to move on. And it even seems that like maybe it's something to where it's like a combination locked where it takes like four different species to make a baby, you know, out of the twenty two that exist or something. And it'll take like a combination of them on a harvest moon or something, you know, and it'll be this this thing, um but, That's
1: how the hermaphrodite happens.
2: Right. And that's the thing, right? It's like Baphomet, right? It's this androgyny, it's this idea that you're Yes, and no it's this either or but it's it's neither is the oh. it's, it's the opposite of either or it's yes.
1: Pre well, Orthodox no. scripture just disca- described creator as above or beyond gender, so right. if we have a society that's very obsessed with the idea of returning to source where well, then the direction we would probably be going in is to be uh, devoid of our more highly egoic identifications of things like gender
2: very interesting. And you say something like that, you know, to the wrong crowd, right? We're all open-minded here, so we can Uh talk about this kind of stuff. But you you say that- I'm happy to be
1: the sandpaper you can choose to polish yourself. Well,
2: what's what's interesting is this is a safe place, you know? I mean, and so, you know, we can talk about stuff like this in a realistic format without ego. And that's what it it comes down to, a response like the one that I'm talking about here, is this egoic, like, hang on to this old way of doing things. And it's just like all the people nowadays that are screaming for the- you know take getting things back to normal well norm, normal's gone we've evolved oh, past that, well that's
0: and that speaks to what i was going to ask a, a Mira pertaining to should or could or would it be appropriate from an ontological or deontological perspective for ego ability to even be scaled is it is it uh, again just throwing ideas out that the ego not to say should but through some type of um Archetype of uh, whether it's genetic programming, or whether it's through an evolutionary lens of sorts, should there be a ceiling a metaphorical ceiling that in that micro macro scalability be like should ego hit the, the ceiling at some point, if that makes well, sense.
1: guess which archetype is going to best serve you in that situation ironically. The Minerva archetype because what did she do broke through the ceiling of her father's mind, so you know it's not now there's just a, a, an evolved expression of that archetype you just name the new ceiling or you know skull of the psyche of that other larger archetype right. so that it's always there to sort <clears throat> of uh that it it's whole a at a, like very root level is to penetrate through those ceilings to so get you
0: have a regurgitating archetype of just hitting a bigger ceiling essentially this,
1: yeah, well, I think, you know, a, a new ocean, you're hitting the, the the tension that exists between two realms, right? So we know this even to be true with the, the, the realms of water and air. So we view air as our realm, right? But to a fish, water is their realm. But there is a surface tension that must be broken, that must be penetrated through to uh, go between those realms, basically
0: that oh my gosh that resonates like well, Brandon, you, you want to jump in but that that resonates to me at least personally in physics looking at a variety of squeeze states and a variety of different uh i guess you could say um a uh, particle fluctuations within those squeeze states
2: please and go the- on with that i've I'm, i'll save mine go on with that oh no please.
0: please that's all i wanted to say please please
2: i it i i had it and i lost it so that's no okay.
0: worries no worries um <laughs> I
1: trust to... the power of your subconscious mind to bring it back to you.
0: I know. You <laughs> I know
2: it'll, it'll come back, but uh, no, this is just fascinating. I just um, love these deep dives, and I knew that you two would hit it off. I knew well, this it speaks this, to the I'm whole concept of the,
0: the observability and squeeze states, and that speaks to the whole angle of, I guess you could say, um, the the expansion and compression of fractality and of one's perception. Go. Again, it's like a like um, a tensor, method.
1: Breathing. yeah,
0: an elastic of breathing, like when you hug somebody, you don't hug them like this, you hug them like this, eventually you need to let go or else you're going to physically squeeze them to death, literally. So it's that same right, it's that same idea that okay, I I just want to say, Mira, I want to thank you because you, you actually opened my mind in terms of that, um, particularly to the ego being scaled, because if you were to stop it at one point there's still that larger scale in which it's going to reside because it's part of the archetypal foundation
1: in and of itself. Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, I think people and and even admittedly, even I did this made an enemy of the ego, right, because even as I was emerging out of duality mindset, I had to have an enemy to be against to like, you know, feel like I was getting somewhere, but that I've realized now that I can actually exist. Uh, you know, for me, it's looking at it from the concept of like, how can I use words to define my ego in a way that uh, allows it the most fluid experience? Uh, so that's where that whole I am that I am thing came in, because that's really the only def- the the only deep defining sustainable identity that I have applied to it at this point so that I don't attach too much of a limiting self worth to particular title edges mm. in my lifetime. Um, and so, you know, this kind of speaks to that in general, but I think something you might find interesting, uh, even as we speak about the, the move from the tw- that Trinitarian concept to the Quaternion concept is that more recently, and I've talked to Brandon about this before, that there's been a discovery that there's a fourth phase of water. And that, you know, previously we only thought there were three phases of water. Well, maybe there really were only three, there, we only, we're able to experience three phases of water up until the point that we discovered and or invented it. (laughs) Who knows which actually happened. But the fascinating thing about uh, and so the fourth phase of water is referred to as the exclusionary zone. And basically how it acts within the phases of water is as a channel or as a squeezing, uh, as you would describe, it acts as a tension that funnels, uh, you know, so the example of this is that if you put If you take a like if you took a bendy straw like a plastic straw and you cut it and you put it in water, the exclusionary zone is what creates a flow or a channel. That you can visibly see that the water then picks a directional flow to move in, Uh, whereas there are other uh, forms of liquid that you can put that in like oil and there's no. Like there's no flow that happens. There's no when, channeling that happens.
0: When it picks a direction, regardless of the direction, does it seem to revolve or orbit, if you will, around that center point? Uh,
1: yes. It's very it's very convergent. Uh, you know, very like.
0: Like a like a Tesla coil, like the the. Oh the yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Right. <laughs> okay. I okay. Wow. Um, sort of like a harmonic oscillator as well. I mean, we can we can keep going with with the examples, but um. I don't mean to to sort of be the party pooper of this, but in the next few minutes, I probably have to take off myself. But I, I was wondering, is there anything, Brandon or Mira, that either of you wanted to jump in on to sort of end off with? Or I, I
2: kind of remember what I was going to say. So I was curious about this, like scalability of this of these archetypes, and that's something that's very interesting to me because, like, whenever I think about this place or whatever, I think of like this dualistic nature, and I think duality only exists here because it's necessary here. But outside of that, like time, you know, we can already kind of wrap our minds around that. And so even the structures themselves, the archetypes and the the things that we wish to be different or the things that we feel like, like I said, like we've already outgrown this egoic, you know, whatever. And so it feels like that there should be, in my mind again, that there's, that this is sort of an isolated environment. Like it's just a, it's um, just here. And so therefore the outside of that, you have, uh, yeah, there you go. And then outside of that, at some level though, the ego is no more because it's not necessary. You see what I'm saying? Like, is there a level of existence where the ego and duality and all of that is
0: not necessary anymore? This speaks to the Cartesian plane and, and yeah, yes, yeah. Non, but more so non Euclidean, um, elements that seem to break out of that, that 3d, um, linear cause and effect chronology.
2: Yeah, and we would call it like perfect right because then you don't have too hot or too cold it's just right. like a state of existence it's perfect for you because it's just ideal and so well, like we you would call it perfection because you lose the things here that we find to be unperfect which is this lack of balance and harmony and things like that so the opposite of that would be balance and harmony and maybe the ego is there but it doesn't present itself as an ego because it's so well integrated as a part of a whole so it's not Separate, you know, like this is the example of like you hating your fingernails. You know what I mean? It's like they're part of you, and at some point, you know, maybe on some perceptive level, you realize that it's a non sequitur. It's just like, oh, what this thing? Yeah, yeah, of course it's part of me. Whatever. We've so, got other stuff we're talking about. You know what I mean? I
1: can't remember. It might be the Begevagito uh, that speaks to the body of God as uh it actually correlates astrologically the archetypes as like um uh, body parts of god
2: yeah um yeah, so yeah, i think
1: yeah. like taurus is uh like the left foot or something and like you know that there's uh some expressiveness to that but again because of our hyper obsession with personifying deity as this yeah. um for our egoic attachment or uh um, you know you're
0: saying as, yeah, as, as personifying, personifying these like asymmetrical like human bipedal, like humanoid. Like bipedal yeah yeah yeah, yes. yeah.
1: So I think there's some importance in that in the relationship that we need to accept ourselves as source um, or as creator, you know, as dweller and architect. But that you know, from like so uh, to your point, Brandon, I sort of uh, contracted or deconstructed the archetypes before I was able to expand. And so you look at this even from the concept of breathing that you know to become a deeper breather, oftentimes you have to learn how to. Uh, like not necessarily hold your breath longer, but you have to be able to experience a, a deeper sense of contraction within your lungs before you can have a more expansive sense of like, you know, um your lung capacity, basically.
0: Holy cow. Yeah. this
1: but by the way, your lungs are super fractal, too, because they're made up of a bunch of other tiny lung sacs that make up your greater lungs. But that for me, I had to go, okay, well, what are these basic principles of like even, I don't know how well people can see the wheel, but I'll kind of zoom in on it.
0: I, I could um, see very well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Very, So, very-
1: you know, we see these, we see that there's, you know, here's the Euclidean expression it's the numbers. And right?
0: they're at right, right angles too.
1: Right. Yeah. So, but then there's this, like one of the practices that's in this workshop for me is how can you coalesce opposites, which tex- technically would be a contraction, right? Because you're making things one again, but that you're also learning how to make things one again so that you can make things different again. Um, so like, you know, I, I invent and I create our, you know, Leo and Aquarius or, you know, Uranus and, you um, the sun, which are very opposite things uh, archetypally, but that there's at one point, they have to you have to accept that that is actually totally one thing that their opposition is what actually makes them whole and the same not so different. Um,
0: You know, even like
1: that uh, 11 as an archetypal number for people who are into numerology 11 is considered a master number and five is considered the number that is sort of denoting of our more human nature. Uh, that even those are very opposite archetypes, even in the simple format of numbers, right? Uh, But that, you know, how can you, so part of my, one of my exercises with this is making uh, statements that coalesce or uh, make one statement out of I create and I invent, for example. Um, So one of the examples of this, which I'll kind of zoom back out, is there's a couple ways you could do this with the archetypal wheel. One is that you could take astrological opposites and combine them. So combining I am, which is, you know, sort of that Martianite Aries, uh, Aries fire archetype with its celestial opposite I love Venus, Libra, air archetype. And that as a statement or a linguistic, uh, you know, coalescing would be, I'm an embodiment of love and therefore I love what I am that you're making those archetypes one whole again in that understanding of it um, linguistically. But then you could also do it by looking at uh, archetypal opposites uh, that are elemental. So even though Leo and Cancer are right next to each other, they are technically archetypally opposite because one is very feminine, the other is very masculine. Um, One is fire, one is water, but that you can combine them. And that even realistically, there's an understanding that uh, water and fire can be pretty similar. Um, So the statement that I made for this was, I am nurturing to my creations and and therefore I'm nurtured by creation, that there's like a paradoxical understanding of of making those two things whole again. But one of my revelations for this was that one day I was sitting next to a river and the way that the light uh, basically reflected off of the water onto a piece of wood, it made it look like fire on the wood. And it was just like this extremely deeply resonant moment for me where I was like how fascinating that the reflection of water literally looks like flame there's got to be a convergent uh, you know connective relationship between those two things.
0: I want to thank you, Mira, because if you want to talk about synchronicities, the question I had, uh, my final question, just to the both of you in general, um, actually had to do with precisely this. So, regardless of where you put the where which signs on that wheel you try and align, to me that speaks to, again, that that concept of compression, but more so uh, non-destructive compression that seems to be, again, going through that vortex, that spiral, that cone of of uh, what uh, many refer to as non-destructive self-implosion uh charge collapse or whatever you want to call it now to me this also speaks to what's been coined as zero point energy um where no matter what you shrink in the you know from a therm- thermodynamic sense or in other regards in in the room in whatever room that you're conducting this experiment in there is a fundamental force that remains at the center point of that that con- that conversion and i wonder if again if such maybe I'm being overly vague here, but if such ideal um, archetypes reside at that zero point, and when pursued, it speaks to the micro and the macro of you know move zooming in, zooming out that that whole angle there.
1: Yeah. So you know, I I have an interesting relationship with the number zero because I kind of feel like you know again paradox in place that zero and infinity are actually the same number with just dualistic expression to them, because what yeah. happens if you take the two ends of a zero and twist it? You get an infinity, right? You get that convergent point. But that's that sort of looking in the mirror that has to happen for us that's so archetypally representative of what it would mean then to right. be willing to face yourself in the concept of infinity, that twisting upon itself, that looking within, that de- that intentional deconstruction, right? Like uh, I, I do this with clients a lot too, where everyone, I'm always like, you know, people find walls within themselves and they wanna like blow them up and get rid of them. And I'm like, no, 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 there's lots of useful material here. We could like take all the bricks out and make a bridge now with them. Like, let's not just pulverize everything. Well, to me that speaks
0: you to the, the, really the relationship of, of, of realigning uh, yes. uh, instead of cause and effect, people think, okay, it has to be this way. So if it's not this way, I'm throwing it out. Who Who's to say? There could be a realignment or a reshaping of those observables in an archetypal sense that you can then manifest into your day to day life to then improve your life.
1: Yes. So, you know, I think, you know, from the context of zero point, I think that, you know, we're looking at it as zero point because that's our human perception of it, but that realistically it's the point of the infinitous moment happening all at once. It's just that that would feel like nothing. us because it's devoid of a lot of the more human characteristics that are you know highly emotive and reactionary uh to stimuli but that you know creation as a whole doesn't really react much to stimuli because if it did then it would be too controlling over the creative process instead of letting it just happen hopefully that kind of makes
0: sense absolutely that speaks to a potential interference of the the process of uh assembly of fractalization or defractalization. So that would be sort of an interruption in the mother nature or the cosmos or whatever the underlying blueprint is comprised of.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> Even God. in fractals, there's got to be a moment where it decides to be nothing to be something new again.
2: Because uh, it's never ending. So it has right. to end itself. Right. And that takes a conscious decision. Speaking Something I was just going to yeah. say to wrap this up, and, uh, but this has been amazing. I knew, it's again, you two would hit awesome. it off. Yeah.
1: This thank you very much. Oh, no, thank you.
2: Thank uh, you. This might be a whole new thing here. We'll talk about it. But anyway, yeah. um, so one thing I was thinking about about this is how interesting it is that we are on this per- on the level of scale of perception that we're on. And here's what I mean by that. If we zoom in far enough, it's just a bunch of the same things or potentiality if we zoom out far enough, all of the concepts of individ- individuality and self and experience all dissolve and they're just gone. It's just like whenever you go on the internet or something and you find a comp- on a picture and you zoom into it super far to like a period on the chart that you had, you know, and you think that that's reality, but really it's just this one little piece of a huge picture. And then if you zoom out super far, now it's a small little period looking dot, but in that period looking dot, that far zoomed out and couple, encompasses that whole pre- presentation that you had. So there's a lot at whatever scale, but we seem to be right at the scale of experience, which is really cool. So it, we're like fortunate to be at this scale. So I just kind of want people out there to kind of think about that as you're going through your day, like you, no matter what it is, if it sucks, then you still have the eyes to perceive it, that it sucks. And that's a beautiful gift in
0: this model.
1: We're all collectively learning from that. Thank you.
0: (laughs) I I truly couldn't agree more. And and with that said, if it's all right for the both of you, um, Mira, could you please tell everyone on on my end of things where and how you could be found? If there's any work you'd like to promote of of your own, I'd be more than happy to uh, to to uh, to help promote it.
1: Sure. So uh, I have a website uh, www.moonandroom.com and that is for my uh, integrative uh, wellness practice as a therapist. There's all sorts of stuff you can read about how i approach uh, psychology and spirituality as healing modalities in session and sort of uh, the more individual work that's available to people in that sense but there's also a uh, self-discovery section that i invite everyone to look at because there are all sorts of things that i've written from a sort of more biopic uh individual i am sense of consciousness and what happened for me through sort of my spiritual awareness and awakening. But then there's also been a lot of stuff that I've shared to it that have been a part of that revelationary process that, uh, you know, our old uh, understandings or philosophies that, you know, I hope that people will just check it out. Uh, there's a reason I call it self-discovery because I don't want anyone to feel the context of what it meant to me, except for in particular areas where I've found it to be pretty, uh, pretty true for most of the people that I've dealt with. And so those are the, those more biopic writings but please check it out. And then uh, you can find me on social media on Instagram at at MiraTaylorWellness is my personal account. And then I have my business account, which is at Moon and Rune Wellness.
2: And Brandon, of course, as usual, brother. Expandingrealitypodcast.com.
0: Thank you guys so much. That'll get you everywhere else. Awesome. And very quickly, just for Brandon's uh, audience, uh, patreon.com slash Generation Z, Generation Z podcast on Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or YouTube, at Podcast Z on Twitter, and um, I believe, yeah, Generation Z podcast, no space, no capitals on Instagram. Thank you so very much, especially to Tamira for coming on. This has been great, truly.
1: Absolute honor. Very happy to be here and grateful for it.